You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. This month we have been learning that Christians aren't just people that care about mercy and justice, uh, not just people that do merciful or just things, but that Christians are at an identity level, merciful and just people. The Beatitudes, as we've been walking through them, hopefully you've heard and and will continue to hear today, uh, that this is not a checklist by which we try to earn our way into the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes is really the, the way we live out the faith we have, the way we live out the new identity that we've been given as we've already been brought into God's kingdom. So today we're going to look at these final two Beatitudes in verses 9 and 10. And we'll look also at Jesus's elaboration of that last beatitude that continues into verse 11 and 12. But to help us see that this is really a a continuation of the the text we've been in throughout this month, I'm going to start back in verse one. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse one. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. They shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Living God, we ask now by the power of your spirit that you would help us to hear your holy word with open hearts and that hearing we might understand and that understanding we might believe and that believing we might follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and your glory in all that we do. And we pray that all in the name of Jesus, who is our Savior and our God. Amen. As we consider these final two Beatitudes this morning, we're going to do what we've done uh, throughout this month. We'll first look at the attribute itself, then we'll look at the corresponding blessing that Jesus says. Uh, And then lastly, we'll talk about some applications for what it looks like to put that into practice, specifically as we seek to become Jesus's merciful and just people. So first, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. A peacemaker, quite simply, is one who makes peace. Paid a lot of money, went to three years of seminary for that insight. So you're welcome. You should go to seminary too, okay? But making peace, making peace is very different from keeping peace. Peacekeeping is characterized more by avoiding conflict, It's characterized by appeasing people. It's a cheap surface level counterfeit to peacemaking. Peacemaking requires going into conflict 
It requires going into hostile places. It's seeking to make peace where there currently is none. So a lot of peacemaking, and I know many of you are well aware of this, a lot of peacemaking is about our interpersonal relationships. When we experience hurt and breakdown in our relationships, be that in your family or amongst your friends or in a church community, peacemaking is the difficult, costly work of seeking reconciliation, seeking repair in those relationships. Some years ago, Ken Sandy wrote a book all about this that's called The Peacemaker. And it's a really helpful book, particularly dealing with interpersonal relationships and being a peacemaker there. But in God's kingdom, peacemaking is actually broader than our interpersonal relationships. It's not less than that, but it's a lot more than that because biblically the word peace points to the Old Testament Hebrew word shalom, which is a comprehensive view of wholeness and well-being. Shalom is what God created the world with. It's what God created the world to experience before humanity's sin came into the world and, and corrupted that. To be a peacemaker then is to pursue God's shalom. It's to seek out things in our world which are broken and to contribute to their restoration. Or like the prophet Jeremiah wrote in kind of a famous passage to the the exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah 29, it's to seek the welfare, the thriving of the place that God has sent us. It's to seek the welfare of the people that God has placed us among. Ultimately, to be a peacemaker then would mean to care about other people's relationship with God. It's that when I consider other people, I'm not just concerned with my relationship with them. Are we at peace? But I'm thinking, are they at peace with God? Or are they hostile toward God? Are they at enmity with God? Because that's exactly what what we once were. Jesus actually points that out in this Beatitudes corresponding blessing. He says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. What does Jesus mean when he says that? He means that that before you and I can serve as a peacemaker, before we can be an agent of God's peace in the world, we need God to make peace with us. We need God to be our peacemaker. Sin by definition is hostility toward God. Sin makes us enemies of God. And we read this in various parts of scripture, but the apostle Paul in particular points to this a lot in his letter to the Romans. In Romans 1 and and 3 and 5 and 8, he points this out over and over again. Left to ourselves, our deepest need is peace with God, reconciliation with him. But we are unable to secure that for ourselves. And so God took the initiative. God did the work to make peace with us. Jesus, who is anticipated as the Prince of Peace in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ came into the world and at the immense cost of his own suffering and death, secured our peace. He himself is our peace, Paul writes in Ephesians. Or in Colossians, through Jesus, God is reconciling the world to himself, making peace. Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. And this peace, this reconciliation, is why you and I can be called sons of God, this blessing and this beatitude. See, as enemies, we were orphans. We were orphans. We declared autonomy from God. We were estranged from and hostile toward our father. But through Jesus, through faith in his finished work, we are adopted. We are welcomed into God's family. The word sons here, sons of God, 
It's radically inclusive. Both men and women, Jesus teaches here, are called sons of God. Why? Because in this cultural context, only sons had the full rights and privileges of inheritance, of being an heir. So Jesus is not excluding women when he says sons of God. He's including them in a pretty radical way for the first century. Through Jesus, he's saying that men and women together are called sons of God. Together, we are brought into God's forever forever family. Together, we are given all of these rights and privileges that come with sonship. So when we are peacemakers, then, we are reflecting some of the character of our heavenly father. To be a peacemaker is to reflect some of God's own character. As sons of God, we get to participate in and we get to pursue the peace, the son of God secured for us on the cross. Our peacemaking, in other words, confirms that we are those whom God has made peace with, that we are those who have become and can truly be called sons of God. Every week we have a a reminder of this built into our liturgy, built into the way we do our worship services here. Passing the peace, as Jordan led us in not too long ago, is a celebration of this peace that God has made with us through Jesus. And it's an opportunity to pursue peace, to live in peace with each other. So passing the peace is one application of this beatitude. And there are many others. There are a lot of applications for this beatitude. But this morning, I want to specifically call us to be peacemakers for vulnerable children and broken families. To be peacemakers for vulnerable children and broken families. Whenever there's a need from safe families or a need for foster care or a need for adoption, it's because if we zoom out, it's because sin has corrupted God's vision of peace. All of the people you've heard from this month, all the organizations that you've heard from, all the needs that we've heard about, they exist because sin has made war on God's good design. Because sin has corrupted and attacked the goodness of intact families. The goodness of of homes with a mom and a dad who love and protect and are able to provide a healthy and safe environment for their kids. The needs, when we hear them, they represent a breakdown of shalom. So there's a massive need for peacemakers in all areas of life, but in this area in particular, for people to bind up broken families, for people to to bind up the broken hearts of the vulnerable children and the vulnerable adults, to, to ensure there is an abundance of care and an abundance of support available. In his book called More Than Enough, an author named Jason Weber writes about what this looks like. He highlights Uh, Four four things. First is more than enough foster and kinship families for every child to have an ideal placement. If there's ever going to be more homes, more families available than there are kids that need the home, there's going to be more of us that need to step into that place of being peacemakers. Second, more than enough adoptive families for every child waiting for adoption so that nobody ages out anymore. So that everyone, no one has to ever say the government is my parent, like we heard last week. Third, more than enough help for biological families trying to stabilize and reunify. It's an often overlooked area of this ministry, and it's one of the reasons I love safe families. They're trying to come alongside biological families that want to be good parents to their kids and are just struggling to do so. And then fourth, more than enough wraparound support from the church for foster, kinship, adoptive, and biological families, really what we've been calling here care communities, coming alongside families that are, that are serving in those capacities. 
As we close out this month focused on foster care and adoption and fatherlessness, how might God be leading you to be involved in one of these things? How might God be leading you to be involved in one of those things? Uh, In our church in particular, here's the reason that this all came about like over a year ago, year and a half ago. I think that this local initiative suits our church really well. Why? Because in this church, we really care about families and we really care about kids. It's a pretty natural extension of who we are. I actually don't know if I've ever been a part of a community of Christians that's embodied that or cared more about that than this one. Uh, You fight for health in your marriage so that you can provide a a healthy home, a healthy home life for your kids. You own, so many of you own the responsibility to disciple your kids. And that looks a little bit different for each family, but you own that. You you want to say, "I, I want to own the responsibility to teach my kids about Jesus. And you try to provide not only a stable, but really a thriving home life for your kids so that they have all these opportunities to learn and grow and experience different things. This also applies to those of you that that don't have kids at home right now. If you're an empty nester, if you're a couple that doesn't have kids, if you're unmarried, you also in our church come alongside families and kids in beautiful ways here. You serve in ministries that really bless those kids. You enter into relationships across ages and stages through Bible study groups and through discipleship relationships. And then collectively, we, we pursue being each other's spiritual family where we get to live all that out together. And all of that is beautiful. It's beautiful. So let's keep pursuing that. But it would be a tragedy if we became so obsessed trying to perfect our own families that we neglected to become peacemakers for the broken families in our neighborhoods. I thought about King Hezekiah this week. And I said that out loud in the first service. And I was like, of course, like you thought about King Hezekiah this week, right? Like who thinks about King Hezekiah? I do. I'm a, I'm a nerd like that. I thought about King Hezekiah. He was the king of Judah, the Southern kingdom uh, in the waning days of that kingdom before Babylon came and, and conquered it. Hezekiah later in his life recovers from a sickness. And these envoys, these ambassadors from Babylon come and they congratulate him on his recovery. And before they leave, Hezekiah gives them this full access behind the scenes tour of everything he owns. He says, oh, here's all the wealth and all the stuff we have here in Judah. Not, not the brightest move. Okay, that would be like giving a thief a full tour of your house, opening your safe up for him, maybe showing him your safe deposit box at the bank, giving him all your internet passwords. It's like that. The prophet Isaiah comes and he says, what are you doing? What are you doing? All the stuff you just showed them, they're going to take it. They're going to take it. Even some of your own sons, Hezekiah, are going to be taken and exiled into Babylon. And if that news wasn't tragic enough, Hezekiah's response in that moment is worse. He says, at least there will be peace and security in my days. At least it won't happen in my lifetime. What a damnable attitude. Right, what a, he, and, he, and this is why I jumped out at me this week. He uses the word peace. He even uses the word peace. At least there will be peace in my day. That's the epitome of peacekeeping, avoidance, self-centeredness. At least I'll be fine. Man, kind of stinks for everybody else. Kind of stinks for my sons. At least I'll be fine. Now, I know that's not the same scenario that we're talking about when we talk about vulnerable children and broken families, but church, sons of God are peacemakers. 
We, we aren't as selfish and short-sighted as Hezekiah was. We, we don't look at the broken families and the vulnerable people of our world and say, well, at least there's peace and security for me and mine. We find ways to pursue peace, to pursue the restoration of God's shalom. Not every need is your responsibility. And, and some of you probably really need to hear that this morning. Not every need is your responsibility. Not every broken family or broken situation is yours to be a peacemaker in. But men and women, Cumberland County, Dauphin County, York County, Perry County, Adams County needs you, needs us to be peacemakers for vulnerable children and vulnerable families. And this blessing that we get to be called sons of God has everything to do with this. Because through Jesus, we who were once spiritual orphans have been brought into God's family. We've been given an inheritance that left to ourselves. We had no business inheriting. So I can't think of a a more powerful way to display the worth of that, that we get to be called sons of God, than to be a peacemaker for vulnerable children and families. It says really loudly to each other, and it says to our world really loudly, that being brought into God's family is infinitely more valuable than having a perfectly cultivated human family of my own. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Second, second, blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. What does Jesus mean by this attribute? Persecution in short is wrongful, unjust treatment. Wrongful, unjust treatment. In November, we had a chance to pray for the persecuted church around the world. And each Sunday, particularly in our prayers of the people time, we heard some examples of the various forms persecution can take, does take uh, in our world. Persecution can be physical, like violence or harm or imprisonment or even death. Persecution can be financial or governmental or vocational marginalization or oppression. It can look like losing your job. It can look like losing rights that you would otherwise have as a citizen. It can also be social and relational. It can mean scorn and hatred and loss of relationships. Or as Jesus says here in verse 11, it can be verbal when people revile you or slander you or attempt to assassinate your character, your reputation. A couple important observations for us to make about experiencing persecution this morning. First, it's normal. It's normal. It it shouldn't be surprising when that happens to Christians. Jesus taught his disciples that if the world hated him, it would also hate his followers. The apostle Paul writes to Timothy that all, not some, but all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. So not every Christian will experience the same form or forms of persecution, but every Christian should expect to experience some, some form. The second thing for us to observe here is why you are persecuted makes a difference, a big difference. The why matters. So it's not experiencing persecution because you're provocative, because you're an offensive personality. Before we play the the persecution card, it's, it's very often helpful to slow down and ask, am I really being persecuted or am I just a jerk? Do I just need to not be a jerk anymore in this situation? Okay. It's also not because you're being foolish or unwise and experiencing some of the negative consequences of just being foolish nor is persecution any and every kind of suffering. 
So you can think about it like this. Persecution is suffering, but not all suffering is persecution. And the persecution Jesus is teaching about here in the Beatitudes has a very specific why. It's persecution, verse 10, for righteousness sake. It's persecution, verse 11, on my account, Jesus says. See, persecution has everything to do with our identity. It's wrongful, unjust treatment specifically because we are identified with Jesus. Persecution happens because those who live according to God's ways incite the anger and the discomfort of those who don't. The righteousness of God's kingdom, if you stop and think about it, it's pretty offensive. It's pretty offensive. It's an affront to all kinds of idols that the world that we left to ourselves in our flesh would like to hang on to. Left to ourselves, we'd rather be autonomous than under the authority of God. I'd rather submit to no one except myself. We'd rather be self-indulgent with the power that we have, not merciful, not meek with the power that we have. We'd rather be entitled. We'd rather like to walk around thinking we deserve all the good things that happen to us. Not grateful, not generous with what we have. And on and on we could go. And so when Christians live out their righteousness, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, like one of the prior Beatitudes taught, it exposes and it confronts the unrighteousness in others. And that makes people really uncomfortable. Like Herod with John the Baptist, rather than just being confronted with that over and over again, having to listen to the way my life actually isn't lining up with the ways of God, people will often then find a way to silence or ridicule or marginalize, or in John the Baptist's case, imprison, and then later behead those that are living that out. All of that to say, persecution is not something that we go looking for actively as Christians, but it is something that will come looking for us. John Stott put it like this. He said, those who hunger for righteousness will suffer for the righteousness they crave. Those who hunger for righteousness will suffer for the righteousness they crave. But crazy enough, Jesus says here that we are blessed when we experience this. What does Jesus mean by this blessing? Well, the persecution itself, whatever form it takes, that's not the blessing. The blessing is what that persecution says about us. Experiencing persecution for Jesus' sake says that really we treasure God's kingdom above everything else. It says that faithfulness to God means more to me than the affirmation of other people. It says that we have truly become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. In short, persecution is proof. Persecution is proof of what? Of our identity, our citizenship, that we really are wholehearted followers of Jesus. But also, as Jesus says, it's proof of our reward, proof of our destiny. Your reward is great in heaven when you are persecuted, Jesus says. So the persecution that we experience in this life is ultimately, to borrow Paul's words in 2 Corinthians, light and momentary trouble, which is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs it all, that far surpasses it all. It often doesn't feel light. And it often lasts a lot longer than a moment. But the joy of assurance, the joy of this proof that knowing that we are identified with Jesus, that we have an eternity with Jesus, that reward in heaven secured for us, that is what it means to be blessed. 
It's what allows us to rejoice and to be glad when we experience wrongful and unjust treatment. Persecution is proof that we belong to Jesus and therefore we are blessed. So what does it look like to begin to apply this in our time and place? It would be wrong, as I said, to to actively go looking for persecution, but seeking to be Jesus's merciful and just people, it's worth asking ourselves two questions today. Two questions to ask ourselves today. One, am I present enough in our world to experience persecution? And two, am I distinct enough in our world to experience persecution? Am I present enough? Am I distinct enough? First, am I present enough? One huge reason that you and I might not experience persecution is that we're not actually present. We're not actually visible in the world around us. It can be really tempting, and I'm sure you've felt this at times like I have, it can be really tempting for Christians to hide out, to build some kind of Christian subculture fortress. Presence in the world, engagement with the world is costly. When when we cross paths with people who really hate the righteousness of God, and they start to see some evidence of that lived out in your life, they're not likely going to respond to that well. They're not likely to, to treat you well. But do you see how this fortress mentality in a counterintuitive way is actually the enemy of a truly blessed life? Like we try to build this fortress to live some of our best life now when Jesus is saying, you're actually robbing yourself of the assurance that your best life is later. Great is your reward in heaven. We rob ourselves of of the experience of the proof of that when we hide out. Presence is costly. It's costly. It always has been. Jesus points to the example of the prophets here and his own disciples, his apostles would continue that. Uh, Faithful men and women of God throughout the centuries, throughout the history of the church have always had to pay a cost of presence and engagement. But I just want to remind you this morning, Christian, to this, you are called. To this, you are called. The prophets, the apostles, the saints of old, they're not unique in that way from you and I. Maybe the specific form of persecution they experienced, but not in that they were called to experience it. Like William Shedd once wrote, a ship is safe in harbor, but that's not what ships are for. A ship is safe in harbor, but that's not what ships are for. Christians might be safe in a Christian fortress, at least a little bit, but that's not what Christians are for. The equally important second question though is, am I distinct enough? to experience persecution. Not only am I present enough, but am I distinct enough? The world won't persecute you if you're exactly like the world. But if you are pursuing the righteousness of God's kingdom, if you are explicitly identifying yourself with Jesus, that's gonna stand out. That's gonna stand out and not always be appreciated when it does stand out. When it comes to vulnerable children and broken families, uh, when it comes to foster care and adoption specifically, There's been some pretty intense pushback nationally, globally in recent years. Adoption, and and in particular, interracial adoption, has been compared by some to be a new form of colonialism. And it's been argued that you shouldn't adopt people, especially from other cultures, because you're essentially just finding another way to to conquer their culture. And then as Christians in in the foster and adoption space in particular, Christians have taken a lot of heat for insisting that that vulnerable children should only be placed in a family with both a mom and a dad, not a family with with two moms or a family with two dads. 
What I want to say to you this morning is be willing to take that heat. Be willing to take that heat. Not because you're a jerk. Not because you hate same-sex couples. Not because you're failing to see the benevolence of their actions because there's a lot of benevolence in their actions. But take the heat because as a peacemaker, one who is pursuing shalom, pursuing wholeness according to God's design, children need a mom and a dad. That's what actually will serve the good, the highest good of that vulnerable child. Take the heat because it's not God's design for a child to grow up with two moms or two dads. Just taking that stance will mean very little to our world if we aren't also providing some of those mom and dad homes for vulnerable kids. But as we are opening our homes, as we are pursuing that together, if we maintain this distinction, we can expect to be met with some wrongful, unjust treatment. So are you present enough to experience persecution? If not, I want to call you this morning to become more present in our world. One, I would encourage you this week to think about one way you can be more present right now, less hidden in a Christian subculture fortress. Go in with your eyes wide open, fully expect that that presence, that engagement will cost you something, but be willing to pay that cost. Are you distinct enough to experience persecution? If not, I want to call you to start faithfully embodying your distinctiveness, hunger and thirst for righteousness like we talked about a couple weeks ago, find just one way that you can more explicitly identify yourself with Jesus. Even conversationally, find a way to talk about how something you're involved in in your life, maybe already involved in, that you do that because specifically you love Jesus and that you believe following him and walking in his way is the only way and the most satisfying way to live. In short, don't go looking for persecution, but be present and distinct in our world and expect that persecution will come looking for you. Now, the great paradox of these final two Beatitudes, paradox and beauty of them, is that peacemaking and persecution go together. They go together. It's tempting on the surface to think that peacemakers will always be appreciated, not persecuted. It's tempting to think on the surface level, well, Everybody likes peace, right? Wrong. Wrong. Maybe in theory, we like peace. We definitely like peacekeeping. But real peacemakers have always been persecuted. And the epitome of that is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the peacemaker. He came into this world to point to and to usher in the restoration of God's peace, the restoration of God's shalom. And he was hated for it. He was hated for it. He was persecuted for it. He was mocked and he was beaten. He was humiliated, not only to the point of death, but to the point of death on a cross. But in the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, that persecution secured your peace. That persecution was God's way of making peace and accomplishing our reconciliation with him. So church, may you trust the one who has made peace with you through his persecution. May you be present enough and distinct enough to experience persecution for Jesus' sake. And may you be a peacemaker for vulnerable children and broken families. As a church, as a church, not only this month of January, but throughout this year, throughout our lives, may we show the world there is more value to being part of God's forever family than having perfectly cultivated human families of our own. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us.
Father, thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in Jesus. Thank you that through Jesus and his cross, you have made peace with us. Would you help us to live and rest and enjoy that peace? And would you help us to be peacemakers, now sons of God that we are by faith? Would we go out into this world and seek out the things that are broken and contribute to their being made whole again? Would you specifically stir up in us the desire, the ability to do that in, for vulnerable children and vulnerable families? Would you move us to be a church that does that directly, that builds care communities that come around the people who are doing that directly? Would you help us to be present and distinct in our world, be peacemakers in our time and place? And thank you, Jesus, for your finished work, which we now get to come to this table and see and celebrate together. We pray that all, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.